Let's read Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, through the first couple verses of chapter 12. And if you're new with us, we're just going through Genesis right now, chapter by chapter, and you, you've, you've come with us at a, at a great time, because we're about to get into Abram's story. So Genesis chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And Ru had lived, when Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wives was Sarai with the name of Nahor's wives, Milcah, wife Milcah the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed as we are. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Lord, you've given us your word. You've preserved it through the ages. You've translated it into a language we can understand. And yet still there are things that we don't understand. So enlighten our hearts by your Spirit's power today. Show us truths that you mean for us to see and understand Show us things that will change our hearts and form us into Christ's likeness. By your Spirit's power, help us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, with the dispersion, we're just going to jump right into this. With the dispersion after Babel last week, we've moved to, to, to a division that we often break up. We, we say we've moved from primeval ancient history to what we call patriarchal history. The 
much longer, much slower, 40 chapters of Genesis that cover a shorter amount of time as, as the clock ticks, but in much more detail. Genesis 1 through 11 that we studied covered anywhere from, we don't really know, a few thousand years to several thousand years of the history of the entire cosmos. Genesis 11 and a half through Genesis 50, so the rest covers no more than a few hundred years. Genesis 1 through 11 that we've been looking at for several months now tells us, told us, the history of all of humanity, but from here on out, in Genesis, we're only going to be focusing on one family, Noah's son, Shem's family, and not just Shem's family, but Shem's family through his son Eber, through his son Peleg, through Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. We're still, since, since the very beginning, since chapter 3, we're tracing the line of the promise all throughout history, but we're really slowing down now. And you'll notice that as we slow down, and there's more detail. To give you a little framework for today's text, uh, this, this genealogy in chapter 11, to frame it up for you, if you go back to chapter 10, you'll remember if you were with us a few weeks ago, we had Ham and Japheth and Shem as Noah's descendants. And then Shem's descendant line goes down to a man named Eber, Eber had, and remember that Eber means, is where we get the word Hebrew from, Eber had two sons. One of those sons' name was Joktan, and the other son was Peleg. Now in chapter 10, we saw Joktan's genealogy moving all the way down, but Peleg's genealogy stopped, was interrupted by the Tower of Babel, and now today we're continuing with that line, which is the line of the promise. And so here we are at another genealogy. And, and, and this, is, this is the last really long one, so uh, until you get to Chronicle, well, actually, Numbers, so, uh, but we're not going to go there. We're just going to stick in Genesis. So we're, we're at another genealogy, Shem's line through Peleg, not Joktan, but through Peleg, down to Abram. And I'm not going to preach verses 10 through 26, verse by verse, um, that wouldn't be good for any of us. But, but since, since we've read it, I do want to make a couple observations about uh, this genealogy before we get into the story of Abram, which is obviously where this is pushing towards. So first of all, I want you to notice this genealogy, verses 10 through 26, is different than the one that we read in chapter 10 a few weeks ago. Did you notice the difference? Flip back, just, just if you have your Bible still open, I hope you do, just flip back and look at chapter 10 and compare it to this one. And what's missing in those chapter, that chapter 10 genealogy is all of these ages that we see here in chapter 11. Do you see the difference? It's just a striking difference. You don't have all the numbers there. You get names and you get some people groups, but here you get names and ages. All of these ages, when so-and-so was such-and-such years old, he fathered so-and-so, and he lived this many more years. We see that all over this genealogy. We don't see those in chapter 10. This genealogy, the one in chapter 11 here, Peleg's genealogy, is much more like the genealogy that we saw in chapter 5. Do you remember that if you were with us? The one that moved us in history from Adam to Seth to Enoch to Noah. 
even though many of those men had other sons and daughters, the genealogy, that genealogy, just like this one, focused only on one of those sons from each of those fathers. That's why we use the word patriarchy. It's down the line of the fathers. The including of ages in the line of the promise in chapter 5 and here in chapter 11, it's actually more significant than you might think. So think about it. Seth's age is listed back in chapter 5, but Cain's never is. Shem's age is given here, but Ham and Japheth's ages are never given to us. Peleg's age is given to us here, but his brother Joktan's age is never given to us. Abram's age is given to us, but his brothers Haran and Nahor, they're left out. There's a couple reasons for this. One is it could just be a matter of family knowledge, right? So just, you know this, it, you might not know how old your great uncle was when he died. You probably don't. But you're more likely to know how old your father was when he died or how old your grandfather was when he died. And since Genesis is the book of Jacob's family going all the way back to Adam, maybe this just is how, this is how they kept track of things. Genesis is the, a condensed version, the, 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 the important line, all the important people are here. Uh, from Israel's family tree, Jacob's family tree. So they include their ages. Maybe that's it. That would be a, a historically-minded human explanation. But there's more to this than that. You knew there was, right? Because Genesis isn't just a, a family timeline for the Israelites, written by the Israelites for the Israelites. That's more than that. It's also written by the Holy Spirit for the people of God throughout the ages. Otherwise, it wouldn't be included in Scripture for the people of God throughout the ages. It's, it's for you and me gathered here in Christ's name today. So with that in mind, what did the ages of these men teach us? Well, the ages of these men, of this line of promise, points us to the reality of God's faithfulness to his promises. Let me show you what I mean by that. Sometimes it took a long time, hundreds of years even, for the child of the promise to come down that line of the elect. So, so for instance, Noah doesn't have Shem until he's 500 years old. And yet, God always brings the promised son. He said he would in Genesis 3, and you see his faithfulness. That son always comes no matter how old the man gets. What we see in chapter 11 is an acceleration of the generations. Did you notice how young some of these guys were when they had kids compared to the, the guys in chapter 5? God is working quicker according to human standards. Sheila comes when our Pakshad is only 35. Then it's, it's only 30 years to Eber and 34 more to Peleg. Nahor is, is only 29 when Terah is born. It almost seems ordinary, doesn't it? And then almost as a reminder, God will never let us forget this, almost as a reminder that the child of the promise is going to come according to the will of God and not through man's power, things slow down again. Look at how old Terah is when Abram is born. He's 70. A foreshadowing, isn't it, of how old Abram will be when Isaac is born. Older than that. God wants to show us he's going to be faithful but he's going to do it his way. There's one more thing I want to show you while we're looking at this genealogy. In chapter 5, 
If you flip back and look at chapter 5, there was this macabre refrain at the end of each life. Then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he was not, and then he died, and then he died. Do you remember that? And the the message behind that refrain in chapter 5 was the Romans 5.12 message. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, even the good ones, because all sinned. Death reigned through Adam. But here in Genesis 11, things are a little brighter. Take verse 11 of our text for an example. Notice what's missing. And Shem lived after he fathered Apokshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. That's it. That's all that's written. Even though everything else is identical to chapter 5, we don't have that, and then he died, refrain, do we? Death is less ominous in chapter 11. It's a little less looming. There's a, there's a glimmer of hope when you look at the difference between chapter 5 and chapter 11. There's a glimmer of hope that, that just, just maybe, maybe death won't always reign over us. Because the child of the promise is closer than he ever was before. It's not that these men don't die, right? We know that they die. They certainly die. Romans 5.14 says, death reigned from Adam all the way through Moses. And the next section, verse 32, does say that, that Terah died. Death still reigns in Genesis 11. But the way that Moses has written this for us, guided by the Holy Spirit, makes the reader you and me, at least hope that death might not always reign over us. The language that the Spirit uses is intentional. The words he uses and the words he doesn't use is intentional. The pacing of this passage is quicker than chapter 5. It's tighter than chapter 5, and we're moving closer and closer to the promised offspring. It's like we're a ball rolling down a very steep hill closer to the restoration of life, the inevitable that God is bringing. God really is bringing the promised one. And in the light of that hope, death seems almost an afterthought. It's not as scary. And this brings us to the last and perhaps the most important issue that marks out the difference between the Genesis 5 genealogy and the one we're studying today. And this, this is how we're going to transition to Abram. In Genesis 5, you have 10 generations of faithfulness to God. 10 generations of people who are calling upon the name of the Lord, walking with the Lord, making sacrifices to the Lord, hoping in the Lord, worshiping the Lord. So, so think back to Genesis at the end of chapter 4, moving into chapter 5. With Seth, Moses tells us, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then you have the people who called upon the name of the Lord. Then he gives us all their names. And then there there was Enoch who walked with the Lord so closely, so intently, that the Lord took him straight to heaven. There was no death. And then there was Lamech who named his son, hoping that through his son Noah, the Lord would bring the restoration. And then there was that son Noah himself, righteous Noah, the man who we're told three different times, did all that the Lord God commanded him. Those ten 
pre-flood generations of the line of the promise were, as far as we can tell, God-fearing, God-honoring, Yahweh-worshiping men. But here in Genesis 11, from Shem all the way to Abram, there is no mention of their religiosity, is there? Nothing of their obedience to God, nothing about their prayers, nothing about sacrifices, nothing about worship. In fact, from from verses 10 through 32 in our text, you will not see God's name. You will not see a mention of God or the Lord at all. What's going on here? Well, to answer this question, we have got to go out of Moses' writings and into the book of Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 24, you don't have to turn there, I'll put it on the screen for you in a moment. But in Joshua 24, at the very end of his life, the leader of Israel gives this prophetic sermon to the people of God. And that's that, that famous chapter of the Bible where Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You remember that one? And the context of that sermon is very weighty. Joshua is telling the people, from the way it appears to me, from, from where I'm standing, it looks like you're going to fail. It looks like you're going to fall away. And he's, he's calling on them to renew their promise to God, to renew their covenant with the Lord. Because he knows that they are prone to worship false gods. He's, he's seen that in them. Joshua's sermon in, in Joshua 24, 23 and 24 is, is really an echo of Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy. Because God, through his prophets, is constantly reminding his people of who they are, why it is that they must obey him. So this is what Joshua tells his people, tells the Lord's people at the beginning of the sermon. In Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 through 3, reminding them of who they are, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, talking, looking back into history, looking back into Genesis, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. We're getting to that. We are at that other gods part of the story right now. The reason why in Genesis chapter 11 we don't see any mention of the Lord in that genealogy is because these people aren't worshiping the Lord. They're not even following him. From what we can tell, they might not even know who he is. So how how did that happen? How did we go from Noah, who who Ezekiel says is one of the most righteous, God-fearing men in all of the Old Testament, to Terah, Abraham, and Nahor, who are serving other gods? What happened? Well, we saw last week at Babel that evil was stirring up in the hearts of mankind. and They were posturing against the one true God. Babel really is, more than I think we understand, a major turning point in human history. And it seems from our perspective, just reading it, If we were God, it seems from our perspective that that would have been a great time for God to come down and call on all those people to return to him. Right? That's not what God did. 
We saw this last week. The outcome of God's work at the Tower of Babel was not, and they all spread out into the distant lands, taking the fear of the Lord and the worship of the Lord with them. Now, well, that won't come until Acts 1.8, right? The outcome of God's judgment at the Tower of Babel was simply that the Lord was going to spread them out. Spread the people out across the face of the earth so that they would become the nations. Babel was not an example of God trying to force the people to worship him, and it didn't go well, so he just threw a hissy fit and threw them all out. It wasn't meant, it was never meant to turn their hearts to them that day. Babel is a judgment. God was pushing the people out of Babel, exiling them, spreading them out across the lands because God had in his mind, even then, the plan of redemption. Deuteronomy 32 says that when the Lord did this, when he spread them out to their allotted places, he already had in his mind his people, Jacob, Israel. And then it would be through Israel, through the Christ, that the rest of the nations would be returned to the Lord. Our redemption, your redemption, my redemption, Delstero Baptist Church was God's ultimate goal in Christ. Our reconciliation back to God through the cross of Christ is what God had at his mind at the dispersion of the people in Babel. God's greater glory, God's greater plan was unfolding there. And if that means that there are a number of generations down the line who don't know him, who don't worship him, who instead are worshiping false gods, well, glory be to God. Because his sovereign plan was unfolding. That is difficult to accept, isn't it? You just wrestle with that in your mind. That is difficult to accept. But friends, we need to have a bigger view of God's providence. God is working through history to one day bring the Christ, and this is the means. Babel was the means. The dispersion of the peoples was the means that God chose in his infinite wisdom to do that. Are those idol worshipers like Terah and Nahor, are they responsible for their own sin? Absolutely, yes. They bear their own guilt. Is God responsible for their dispersion? Yes. In response to their sinful pride at Babel, he judged them justly and sent them across the lands for their own good and for his own glory. God works in mysterious ways. As Cowper says, his purposes will ripen fast, though. Unfolding every hour, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And so what happened at Babel, since their hearts were not changed, is that they took their prideful, self-assured, Babelite imaginations with them as they spread across the earth, and wherever they went, they worshipped created things and called those things gods. And they invented stories about these gods from the pride of their own hearts. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 1, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God, whom they knew, he came down 
to Babel. They knew of him, but they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's the history of the world, and this is true. Notice this is true particularly with the line of Shem. The line of God, or the line that God would call Abram from. In fact, as we move forward in Genesis, and Abram is making his way back to Canaan, he will not meet another Yahweh worshiper until he gets to Canaan. Ironically, back a few chapters ago, ironically, the place where the cursed offspring of Ham are dwelling. Odd, isn't it? So, if Shem's lineage down to Abram are not worshiping the one true God, what are they doing? What is it that they believe? Well, we don't know a whole lot about that line from Peleg to Sarag, but once we get to Nahor and Terah and Abram and their general location in the world, Ur of the Chaldeans, which is very clear in the scriptures, we can discern more about what they believed because of archaeology. From what we know about Abram's hometown, Ur of the Chaldeans, or what Joshua calls the land beyond the Euphrates, or what Stephen in Acts calls the land of Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. That's not far from Babylon. We know that Ur is not too far from Babylon. So whatever happened in that dispersion, these people didn't get too far down the river. This is a place where the people are known, once they get there, to Ur, it's a place known for the worship of the moon god. So, so the, the digs, archaeological digs that have been done since the early 1900s, uncovered in the place that we believe to be Ur, a massive temple, a massive ziggurat, which is probably very similar to what they built in Babel. And this ziggurat that, that you can see today, you can go visit it, was the dedicated place of worship for the moon god Nanar. I had never heard of him. Uh, Nanar is the Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian god associated with fertility and wisdom, because he's the moon god. Why? What's the association there? Well, the moon is the god of fertility because the moon regenerates itself every 30 days. All right, so it's self-regenerating. That that's, seems like a very fertile thing to do for a god. The moon is also seen as the source of wisdom because you can time the months and the seasons based on the moon's phases. If you go around the world, nearly all human civilizations from the Middle East to the Far East to Africa to the Americas, the Americas, nearly all cultures that created calendars, created calendars according to the phases of the moon. The sun has its place, right? The sun is necessary for the bringing of life, but the moon is more significant to the ordering of life. The moon was so important to Abram's people there in Ur of the Chaldeans that their mythology, their stories placed Nanar, the moon god, above in order of rank above the sun god. Nanar was the father of the sun god and one of the chief gods of the Babylonian pantheon. Nanar's symbol, a little encyclopedia lesson for you to know, his symbol is the, is the bull. So think of the calf, right? The golden calf. Nanar's symbol is the bull since the horns of the bull are like that of a crescent moon. Some people even speculate, we don't know this for sure, but some people speculate that Islam's crescent moon has its origins 
and Nanar worship. It's not accidental that Islam originated in the same place. So in all the digging and research in this region, Ur of the Chaldeans, archaeologists have also found ancient tablets with poems and songs and prayers written to Nanar and written about Nanar. Let me read for you some of the things that Abram's people said about this God. Nanar is unfathomably wise. Nanar is the guardian and leader of all mankind. Nanar is the judge of heaven and earth. Nanar chooses and appoints royalty. Sounds like someone we know, doesn't it? Yahweh tells us that these attributes belong to him alone. Abram's pagan family said these attributes belonged to Nanar. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. <laughs> Go with it. That's what you're going to pronounce it that way now. So this is the pagan religion of Abram and his father and his father's father going back to who knows how far. And this is what has become. As we're entering chapter 11, this paganism is what has become of the line of the promise. Going back to Adam through Seth through Noah. This historical context actually helps us to better understand a few things about the end of chapter 11. So look at Genesis chapter 11, verse 29. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife's Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Why did Moses put that there? He could have put that later, but he put it there so that we would know, or if, especially for Israelites, knowing the context here, if Nanar is the moon god, the god of fertility, well, he's pretty well failing Abram and Sarai, isn't he? Sarai was barren. Now, we know why that's the case. We know, as the readers of Genesis, why Sarai is barren, and it has nothing to do with the moon. Sarai is barren because of God's judgment of Eve in Genesis 3.16. God had brought difficulty to childbearing so that women would be reminded that they were to trust in him and not themselves. And ultimately, he was teaching his people that the child of the promise, the one that was coming down the line, the offspring of the woman, was going to come through God's grace, through God's gift, through God's help, and not through the sheer force of man's will. So the mention of Sarai's barrenness is a clue to us, the reader, the power that is yet to be displayed in Abram's life. It will be the Lord, not Nanar. It will be the Lord who is going to make for himself a great nation out of Abram and Sarai, and Nanar will get none of the credit for it. They'll be out of Nanar territory when this happens. It's also a clue to us as we read this text it's also a clue to Sarai that Nanar is pretty worthless as a fertility god. Perhaps that why, that's why Sarai is a little more willing to go with Abram to leave everything that she knows. Well, Abram's family paganism also explains why after they left Ur of the Chaldeans, they settled in Haran. All right, so look at verse 31. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law his son Abram's wife it's, it's almost like a song that I know 
Uh, and, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now that word settled, we've only seen that a couple times before. The word settled is the same word used to describe Cain's settling in Nod and, and, and the people settling in Shinar. They had set out for Canaan, but they settled in Haran. Why did they stop there? Well, the two main temples of Nanar worship were in Ur and Haran. So apparently, Abram's father, Terah, just couldn't quite pull himself away from his family gods. And so verse 32 says, Haran is where he died. And that gets us up to Abram. The main character of the next 14 chapters of the Bible. Abram, Abraham, we'll see, is the, the archetype of listening to the word of God alone, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. And Abram, this great man, this patriarch, wasn't born into a Christian family, was he? He didn't grow up going to church. He didn't know about the promises of God. He was as pagan as any pagan that you would meet today. He married his half-sister, Sarai. We'll find that later on in Genesis 20. And he is going about his life worshiping created things and who knows what abominable ways. He's doing that rather than worshiping his creator. And that's when God called Abram. Seemingly out of nowhere. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, now where did the Lord come from? I don't know. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Where am I going? I don't know. I'll show you. Who's, who's, who are you? The Lord. That's the covenant name of God that we've seen. That The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. And who is he? Well, Exodus tells us, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Our merciful and gracious Lord speaks to Abram, not because Abram deserves to be spoken to by God, right? Abram's a pagan. He worships the moon. Abram, or God speaks to Abram. Not because Abram is holy, not because Abram is righteous, not because Abram has been trying really hard, doing his best, not because he's a sincere and faithful follower of Nanar. And he would, oh, this guy will make a good Yahweh follower. No. The Lord speaks to Abram because the Lord is merciful and gracious. The Lord showed mercy to Abram, the moon worshiper. And the Lord spoke to Abram because God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is faithful to his promises to bring about the Messiah, and he's going to do it through Shem's line, through Eber's line, through Peleg's line, through Terah's line, through Abram. Even though, perhaps because, as Dustin prayed, because Abram is a sinner and an idolater. Because Abram's wife can't even bear children. God chooses Abram and speaks to Abram and calls Abram and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. What does he see in him? Nothing. 
There's absolutely nothing that Abram brings to the table. That's how God works. That's what grace is. God creates a nation from Abram. God creates a people from Abram. God will save the world through Abram's offspring, and Abram cannot boast in any of it. God gets the glory when he brings something from nothing, when he makes something from nothing. That's how God works. It's how he always works. Abram's call is not too very unlike yours. Different era, yeah. Different point in redemptive history, yes. But the same God, God never changes. He was a God of mercy and grace when he called Abram, and he was a God of, is a God of mercy and grace as he's calling you. Abram was a hell-bound pagan before God spoke to him and called him out of the idolatrous land of his fathers. You were dead in your trespasses and sins before God spoke to you in the Holy Spirit and called you out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. Abram had nothing to present to God to justify himself before him. Neither do you. Abram was not wise or powerful, was he? He wasn't the son of a ruler. He wasn't the son of a king. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not. Sarah was barren. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Why does God operate this way? Why did he call Abram like this? Why didn't he wait until Abram discovered some ancient scroll, some story, and let Abram read that, and then, and then begin to be a good person, and then God would call him? Why? Because God operates like this, the way that he called Abram, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because of God, you're in Christ Jesus. It's not your own doing. Our salvation is not a testimony to our wisdom or our power or our high birth. It's all God's doing. God called you into Christ. God called me into Christ. God called Abram into the promise of the coming Christ. And we see that. Look what God says next in Genesis 12, verse 2. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That's the promise of the coming Christ. We'll talk more about that next week. But I want, I want us to see here who is the actor, who is the I here. It's God, isn't it? I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. God does the work. God gets the glory. This is directly following Babel. Think about Babel last week. Moses did not arrange this accidentally. What was happening in Babel? The people were making themselves a great nation. Remember that? The people were forcing for themselves their own blessing from God. The people were trying to make their own name great. And what's happening this week? Several generations have passed. All the people have been dispersed. They've all become 
pagans. They've all become disobedient to God in far more ways than they ever were. The nations have spread out, settled in their allotted lands, and God, in His timing, His own timing, calls a man out of one of those nations and says, I'm going to make your name great. Because it will be through you that my faithfulness is seen to the world. It'll be through you that my promise will be fulfilled. And then, what will he do? Look what he tells Abram in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So all those nations... All those nations that were spread out to the ends of the earth after Babel, those nations that went out and began to worship other gods, the one true God is going to bless all of them through his guy. How's he going to do it? Through the offspring of the pagan whose wife is barren. That's how the story starts. How in the world is that going to happen? We look at this and we, we, in our human estimation, this is foolishness. This story is over before it starts, isn't it? It appears that God has made a very reckless and foolish choice. But friends, God never makes foolish choices. God is never reckless in his decisions. He knows the end from the beginning, and he will be glorified through the offspring of Abram. So I want to end with this word of encouragement for you. Because some of you might have had the thought or the doubt that somehow God got his wires mixed up when he brought the call of the gospel to you. If your struggle against sin And if the doubts that you have make you think that God made a mistake when he called you, I want to speak to you for a minute. Maybe you've asked God to take away your lust, and it doesn't seem to be going away. Or you've asked God to take away homosexual thoughts, and he hasn't. Or you've asked God to take away your anxiety, and he hasn't. Or you've asked God to fix your marriage, and he hasn't. And so you've come to think that something about your situation is impossible for God. Something that God can't overcome. Maybe God's just not able to do it. Friend, God didn't make a mistake when he called you. When he called you, not just to justify you, but to make you holy. He's going to do it. He did not look down the quarters of time and see someone who was smart, someone who had it all together, someone who with just a little help could be good, good enough to call to Christ, and then he accidentally called you. No, the God who called you into Christ is the same God who called Abram. When he looked down the quarters of time and saw you, he saw you for who you are, a messy, broken sinner, dead in your trespasses, someone hopeless without God. He saw in you a pagan like Abram. He saw in you a barren and doubting woman like Sarai. And that's when he said, I will be glorified in that one. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's going to make you holy. 
He's going to, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is the one who does the calling, the blessing, the sanctifying, the glorifying in Abram's life. And God is the one who does the calling, the blessing, the sanctifying, the glorifying in your life. So, be encouraged. He will complete what he has begun in you. Because we see it in Christ, what he begun in Abram. Amen? We can trust God's faithfulness. Let's praise him in prayer.